Gramila Mohigate Verni Agus Maradurt Berni is the one who are manachme Achani or Gulta or Fad Agus Nidoilum Danyeru Danyegan Lum Fado Gemenga Mahasu Snakadurga Kainchar Lavskiri Vintahid Nakondashin a gregging in Tea Dare who lay Lum. But in any event, um, I'm grateful to Bernie for the for the introduction and also for the invitation to speak here today. It's a great pleasure, in fact, a privilege, my first time. So you'll forgive any skittish nervousness that might appear to be emanating from the podium here, which thankfully is very solid. Uh, but uh, I, I'm a native, as Bernie has said, of Fermanagh. I grew up in a very rural part of the county. So if anyone had at that time said to me that I'd end up one day addressing a group of uh, elite listeners uh, in the Royal Irish Academy about aspects of Fermanagh history and manuscript tradition, uh, I, I would have probably looked at them rather incredulously. But in any event, um, we're here today and I'm going to try and talk to you a little bit about this text, Maguire um, Armanach, which is uh, translated as the Maguires of Fermanagh. Uh, and uh, I hope to just talk a little bit about the text and about its background, its context, and that through doing that, shed a little bit of light on aspects of uh, 18th century history in South Fermanagh, uh, or in, um, in South Ulster, uh, at the beginning of the 18th century. So, uh, and there'll be time at the end uh, if you have any questions or things you'd like particularly if you'd like to give me pieces of information that I might currently be in possession of, that would be even better. So this text, uh, the earliest version of this text is held in Trinity College in manuscript 1297. And it was transcribed in the manuscript by um, a scribe called uh, Sean McGavrain. So it could be McGavrain uh, or McGavrain, depending on the pronunciation. Um, probably would be rendered in English as John McGovern, and that, that uh, transcription happened in 1716. In the library of, uh, in the library catalog at TCD, the following description appears in relation to the text, that it's, it's said to be exceedingly curious and valuable as illustrating the history of Fermanagh and throwing light upon Irish manners and clanship in the 14th century. And we'll see later on that that uh, is not particularly true, but I'm sure the catalogers had more on their hands than simply this particular manuscript when they were cataloging, and so it's always possible that uh, the kind of detail we'd like to see is not always available in catalogues. So it was Father Patrick Deneen who published an edition of the text uh, in 1917. And Deneen's edition, uh, in that edition, he provided the reader with the text of the story from the manuscript, edited in the usual way with all the kind of notes and apparatus that comes with that. He situated the text in a, even by our modern standards, a very uh, comprehensive historical uh, introduction, uh, pages 7 to 22. He included, as I've said, notes on the Irish language text and described the manuscript itself, presented a translation in English, which for those people who can't read Irish is a great um, advantage. Um, gave a, a long list of details about characters and place names uh, in that Jin Shanachas tradition that uh, relates to so many of the texts in the manuscripts that gives this information about folklore of place names. 
and finally uh, listed some other genealogical information uh, towards the end of the volume. So let's have a look at the manuscripts themselves. At the time Deneen published this volume in 1917, he was aware only of the Trinity College manuscript. So as far as he was concerned, and he says this in the book, uh, in, the, in, the, in the notes towards the end of the book, that he uh, was unaware of any other version of the story in existence. And over 30 years ago, when I was first dealing with this text as a young MA student, I, I won't say that I discovered because they were already discovered by other people, but they were in catalogues which I came, came across. I came across two other manuscripts, so let's just have a look at the three manuscripts. So um, MS 1297, Trinity, appears, uh, Maguire's of Fermanagh is at the very start. It's the first, it comprises the first 29 pages of the, of the manuscript itself. And it's then followed by a life of St. Mueog, uh, who has a saint, his saint with connections to uh, Wexford, primarily, but also uh, to Fermanagh. And then other types of prose stories and poems and things make up the rest of the manuscript, as is often the case with compilations of these kinds, all kinds of religious prose, uh, secular prose, poetry, and that the like uh, appear in them. So the next uh, manuscript, the, the, uh, chronologically speaking, is CE 17 in Waterford, and it was copied by the scribe Cúchanach Mackay uh, over several months uh, during the years uh, 1738 and 1739. And his name is actually um, in English on the front cover. It's a, he had the volume bound in a leather cover, and it's uh, engraved Constantine, or Constantine, depending on your pronunciation, McHugh, 1739. Interestingly enough, that the, the, the CE designation is Colostia Owen, St. John's College which was a minor, better be careful here, in case there are any Waterford people, it might have been slightly, more than slightly minor seminary until it was closed in the, in the, in the late 90s. Uh, and all the holdings there were transferred to the Bishop's House. So this manuscript is currently held in the Bishop's House in Waterford. And the other manuscript that comes again that bit later is G147 in the National Library of Ireland. Um, and this was described, uh, transcribed by the noted Dublin-based scholar Moorish O'Garmine, who collected and copied the material in the manuscript in and around 1766. And again, the contents of that particular manuscript relate primarily to uh, topics and texts that are of interest to us from the 18th century. This is not a particularly good image, but this is the first page you can see, uh, and I got the little, where's my, can't get, um, yeah, that's page one, there we go. Baha Vikvanas' son, the life of McManus um, here, hereafter, and then the text comes, and you can see it's actually a really good example of uh, manuscript of the time. Um, the, there's a lot of scribal contractions. It's very, very neatly written. Once you get used to the contractions and the, the little abbreviations that he uses, it's very easy to read. Um, so it's a very, very, very nice uh, manuscript indeed. And uh, the hand is, is, is the penmanship is lovely. I only have the two images here. This is, um, uh, the next one is um, Kalashtya Owen. And you can see the difference immediately in the hand, a different type of hand altogether. Probably I might go so far as to say less sophisticated than the, the previous one. There are fewer scribal uh, uh, transcriptions and, and um, or 
abbreviations, I should say, even though you can see them, they, these lines, these look, look like hyphens above various words. That's just to give you kind of a sense of what, it, what the text looks like. So I, I want to just give you a little bit of a pressy of the, context, of the content of the story itself. What is this story about? So the story concerns uh, this character called Manus, who is deemed to be Lord of Fermanagh. And he's the central character in the story and rules over seven Tuatha or tribes that are uh, throughout the county, or what we now refer to as the county of Fermanagh. Uh, at, at later on in the text, we hear that he has a young son, even though he is quite an elderly man uh, at the time of the story. Uh, and the son is described in the text as a Llanavon Og a Gili, uh, which uh, Odinin translates as uh, a young, weak child not yet reached the, reason, uh, the age of reason. So, very young indeed. Manus also has a younger brother, Gilisa, and it's from him that uh, the Gilises of, of Fermanagh uh, descend. And Gilisa was visiting the king of Brefna at the time the events in the story unfold. We, we, we learn a bit more about that as, the, uh, as, as, we get, as we progress here. So uh, Gilisa is, is young, much younger than Manus, um, very courageous. And uh, what happens is that Manus takes ill. It's partly to do with his advanced years, but he becomes bedridden. And it was his wont to collect an annual tribute tax from the sub-chieftains of the, the Tuha in Fermanagh. But because he's bedridden and can't in person collect, collect the tax, Flanagan decides that this is not good enough. He's not paying a tax for the sort of the protection or patronage of a man who's not fit to get out of his bed and protect him. So he decides he's not going to pay. And uh, Manus therefore sends his heavies, the bailiffs, in, and a clash ensues. There's quite a bit of time devoted to this in the text, but I'm giving you the, the abbreviated version of things here. Uh, so the clash ensues between uh, the Maguire representatives and the Flanagans, and both lose uh, valued members of their tribes in the, in, the, in, the, in the clash or in the exchange of hostilities. And at that point then, Manus summons his brother Gilisa back from Brefni. And Gilisa, with the help of the O'Donnell and O'Boyle clans of Donegal, uh, manages to suppress uh, the rebellion and sort of um, discipline, let's say, the, these errant chieftains. So he suppresses the revolt and settles the Eric. And the Eric, some of you may or may not know, it was translated loosely as compensation. It was, used to be referred to as the body price in ancient texts. And that was the, that was the value that would be placed on, an, on a person's life. So that had to be all worked out between the sides. And Gilisa oversees that. So when those various issues have been negotiated satisfactorily, Harmony is restored, and in very much the keeping with, with ancient texts, a feast is held then to celebrate, and everybody, uh, I suppose, uh, rejoices in the new, the newfound re uh, settlement of, of, of peace and uh, order. Gileisa remains on uh, in the area just to ensure that everything is as it should be and that the rising has been fully suppressed. And throughout this incident, Amanus has grown increasingly frail and uh, knows that his time is limited. So before he dies, 
he hands over or arranges for the transfer of the lordship of Fermanagh to his brother. Um, Gilisa is very unhappy initially about this because he feels that this is not the way things go. It goes from, from father to son, the next heir, who would be this young, weak-minded child that uh, Manus has. But Manus insists that the priority here is to keep order and continuity within the county and in the kingdom so that the best way of doing that and ensuring that that will happen is to pass the lordship to his brother. So uh, another question uh, that we need to look at then is, and this brings me back to that comment that was made in the Abbott and Gwynne catalogue about um, events you know, illustrative of the 14th century. Deneen's, one of Deneen's first comments in the, in the introduction to the book is, the tract is written professedly at a date long after the events it purports to narrate and seems to have been partly or wholly drawn from manuscripts or manuscript originals. And he goes on to say, it could not have attained its present form very long before the date 1716, at which it was written from the old historical book by John McGovern or McGowan, and it is uncertain whether the scribe copied it as it stood or introduced modern forms. So we'll see, I'm going to outline some problems that the text throws up when we dig a bit deeper into the, not only the content of the story, but looking at even at language issues. So in the early 14th century, the Maguire clan emerged as the preeminent family and lords of Fermanagh uh, were drawn from among them until the early uh, 17th century. Maguire Armanica supposedly set in this approximate period and purports to relate a series of events that involves Manus and Gila Issa, who are described as rulers of the kingdom of Fermanagh. And we've, we've, we have the potted pressy there, so we know roughly what the story is about. Deneen explains to us that Manus and Gila Issa, sons of Dunmore, are found in the genealogies and in the annals, all right. But if we examine the evidence closely, he states very clearly, there is no room for the reign of Manus or his brother as kings of Fermanagh. So events similar to those described in the story are recorded in the annals of the four masters in the 15th century as having occurred among the ancestors of Brian Maguire. Brian Maguire being, uh, we'll hear a little bit more about him shortly, Brian Maguire was the, the, the uh, Fermanagh, um, you couldn't call him chief, the leader of them or the senior member of the Maguires in Fermanagh in, in the early 1700s, who brought the scribes together to put these manuscripts together. An article by Ray Gillespie and Bernie Cunningham uh, refers to this, uh, these events in the 15th century. Uh, they say, this is the only set of circumstances from the history of the Maguires as preserved in the annals which roughly corresponds to events in Brian Maguire's pseudo-historical tract. The incident is also retold in Dolan's manuscript history of Fermanagh, again dating from the um, early 18th century. But while the events described are very similar, the names of the characters are different. So what we're seeing here is a number of different stories and events that could be, could incorporate the story of Maguire Armanach, but 
none of them fit correctly into the time scale. And then that begs the question, well, what was going on and why was that the case? We have to think a little bit about that. Furthermore, the type of Irish in the text is very much more recent than that of the 14th century. If, the, if, it, was a, if it was a transcription of a 14th century text, it would be bar scholars of, these, of Irish, the type of Irish spoken and written at that time, bar those kinds of people who would have the skill to read those texts. No person, even with modern Irish, would be able to read it very, very easily. Um, so the type of text is, is, is much later than that. Uh, even simple things like uh, the word fain, has, you, it gets used in the text, but budhain is used as well, which is a, an earlier form of uh, fain. Um, the variable system is very much that of modern Irish, the earlier form of, mo of modern Irish, so it can't be described as having been anything like what it would be in the 14th century. Another giveaway is the frequent use of the term conde or county. Um, the, the, word, the term county would only have begun to be used in Fermanagh and in Ulster generally with the plantation of Ulster at the end of the 1500s, they say the 1580s onwards. And you could surmise that it would take a period of time before a term that came in from the plant, from the colonizer, would gain cre credence and use among the natives. So even if you allowed for a period of 50 or 60 years, you might see it becoming a more acceptable and more readily used term. Uh, and I think this text gives the, you know, proves that because there are tw uh, uh, 21 occurrences, I think, of the term county uh, throughout the text. That would give you to believe that the person writing Sean McGowan was very familiar with this term and used it and thought nothing of using it. So all of those things point to the fact that this text is a much younger text than what is, um, it purports to be. So the question that, were, that I was grappling with when I was trying to make sense of all of this was, why was Mugir Armanach written? Can we put together a narrative that, that explains why this text was, was put together, was written, and the import of the text for um, the Maguire uh, dynasty, or what was left of the Maguire dynasty by this stage. Um, we'd have to say that given the lack of certainty about the timing of the events described in the tale and the evidence concerning language, it's almost impossible to determine whether MGF, Mugir Armanach, was composed in the early 18th century or drafted from fragments of earlier sources written or possibly oral, in fact, very possibly oral, still available at the time they were being written down by Sean McGowan in the early part of the 18th century. My own opinion is uh, that it, 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 there are fragments of older material that are woven together in such a fashion to create a tale that serves another purpose. Um, and I think we, as, as we progress through the presentation, I think that'll become clear, at least I hope it will. Ray Gillespie and Bernie Cunningham um, have suggested in a piece they wrote about the, the, pur the purpose of patronage, which appeared in the Claha Record in the late 1980s. And th they've written that the story reached the form in which it was preserved in the manuscripts of Brian Maguire in his own lifetime. It presented the past in obviously anachronistic terms as it might have been, rather than concerning itself unduly with loyalty to any primary source material. I think that's a very accurate uh, summary of, of what's going on here in this text. When Captain Brian Maguire assembled his team of scribes in the early 18th century, 
he was in a sense acting like one of the great Gaelic lords of an era that was at that point, well, it was um, almost dead at that point, but there was a sort of a sense of him not necessarily wanting to create an ancien regime, but to, um, to behave in a fashion that would be recognized by the locality, by the people, the native Irish people would recognize that, that um, as someone who was a patron of, of the arts and of, of the tradition, maybe a protector even of that tradition. But what we know of the historical context of the time is that Brian Maguire was very, very keen to build a new status for himself in the changing times of the early 18th century South Ulster. Because the Maguire family were in decline, Brian Maguire himself was from one of the less important branches of the Maguire clan. But as the clan had sort of faded away, he saw an opportunity to assert himself in a different way and um, achieve a new status for himself. In a situation in that part of uh, South Ulster where the planter-settler thing was uh, an evolving situation. So I think to build this new status, to do that effectively, Brian Maguire had to have a foot in both camps, the, the traditional native Gaelic tradition and the emerging settler context. So by assembling what became known thereafter as the Books of Knocknini in around the year 1718, and the project took a, a few years after that, I think uh, Brian Maguire was communicating a range of messages to the community in which he was operating, in the situation in which he was operating. He was a tenant uh, with lands from uh, the, the Balfour estate at the time. He was adding to those lands year on year, build uh, as his father previously had, had begun to do. So he was gradually becoming a bigger landowner and therefore had more importance uh, in the local society. So building on the efforts of his father, uh, he was carefully molding a new status for himself, as I say, in an evolving cultural milieu, which was a, uh, you know, a, a bilingual milieu and which was uh, very much uh, a society that had uh, planter and settler cheek by jowl with each other and uh, the political situation that had been, say, about 100 years previously, say in the 1640s particularly, when you'd uh, really awful things happening um, across Ulster. So that it was emerging from a very, a great time of chassis, I think, um, in, in in South Ulster and Fermanagh particularly. So I think it's very likely that Brian Maguire wanted to keep a close eye on the native and settler agenda. He was negotiating that terrain, in my view. We talked there about this uh, coming together of the scribes in about 1718. So this manuscript actually prefaces that particular project, the actual books of Knocknelly uh, project. Uh, so I think. It, Brian Maguire oversaw that project, but this text, to me, it seems, almost provides like a preface to what was coming afterwards, and I think that's one of the reasons why the story was put together. Having a text which spoke to the antiquity and eminence of his family through the medium of long-established Gaelic tradition would have been extremely important to Brian Maguire. So the question is why? I think it would have had the effect of reminding the local native population, again, this, this uh, very much rooted in the Gaelic tradition, but negotiating a completely new set of circumstances politically and socially, 
it would have served to remind the local population of its links to an ancient and hallowed Gaelic tradition in a time of political and cultural tasks. What underlying story then is Mugayar Armanach telling us? I think a couple of points could be made to help, help you understand where I'm, where I'm coming from in my own assessment of, of the text and its context. That in the Gaelic tradition, and in this story, a chieftain of the Maguire line was in charge of the county. That that chieftain was capable of organizing the suppression of an uprising, even though at the time quite seriously ill. That he could then diplomatically restore good relationships among his Gaelic sub-chieftains and demonstrate his desire to maintain a rule that was fair and peaceful. And remember that he acted when he transferred the leadership of the county in the story to his brother. He was doing so at the expense of his own line of descent because he, he was putting the welfare of the kingdom ahead of his own familial welfare, let's say. And so by inference, Captain Brian Maguire, who had assembled these scribes in Knockley in the early 1700s, uh, could be seen and regarded by the new political regime as one whose wider family and more importantly, whose forebears respected the rule of law. That he was a man for whom peace, stability, and prosperity were core considerations. And even though we hear lots of different things about the, the tensions between planter and settler, and all of you, forgive me for using those crude terms, but they, they're very neat uh, for my purposes here today. Uh, it, even though we hear that the, the native uh, Irish man was suppressed at the, uh, at the welfare and benefit of the English settler or the Scottish settler, it has to be said that English and Scottish settlers were also going through a traumatic time. They had come from a land that they knew and were settling in a place that they didn't know and were strangers. So peace, stability and prosperity were core considerations for both sides of the, of the cultural divide, I think, in South Ulster. So if the text helped Brian Maguire to create that kind of a reputation for himself, such a reputation could only strengthen his position within the context of the times he was living in and help him to negotiate his status and his evolving importance, let's say, in that new society. And one of the reasons I think this, the, um, what I'm doing here, I suppose, is looking at jigsaw pieces that, and a jigsaw that's not fully complete and I'm trying to pull the threads together to make a reasonable hypothesis about the narrative of this story. So the very, very beginnings of Maguire Armanach has some really, in my view, some very carefully crafted references to important pointers in Gaelic culture that would have been understood, particularly among the, the native Irish at the time of the text's um, uh, uh, writing. The opening paragraphs of the text situate the Maguire lineage in ancient Gaelic lore. Paragraph one, the very first part of the story, contains a pressy of an ancient family pedigree from Manus and Gila Issa, stretching back into the mists of time and the rise of the Maguire dynasty. In paragraphs two and four, mention is made of the, the brothers Cormac and Nathlua, who were uh, ancestors of uh, the Maguires, 
who divided the kingdoms, what were to become the kingdoms of Fermanagh and Monaghan between them. So there's, an, again, a nod to ancient, um, um, uh, a reference to ancient uh, activity uh, and the development of these kingdoms that, that these families were in, uh, in charge of. Uh, there's a piece of Jinshanachas, or folklore, in paragraph three, which recalls the story about the naming of Loch Derg, where the pilgrimage is, and how it's the Red Lake is uh, the story. The, it, this is not, uh, I think this is not the reason that uh, Loch Derg um, got its name, but it, it's, it, a lot of, it's symbolic of the Jinshanachas tradition of the time, which invents stories about how places got their name. The point here is that Loch Derg was a very important pilgrimage site in the area, that it uh, involved St. Patrick, who came along and killed a serpent, a, a vile, huge serpent, I suppose like a Loch Derg monster, maybe, uh, who was terrorizing the area and laying waste to it. And St. Patrick came along, struck it with his crozier, and the creature died in the lake, bled, and turned the waters of the lake red, and hence it became known as Loch Jarek. But the point is, it connects the whole Maguire thing to an ancient Christian tradition. Um, paragraph 6 lists the chieftains of the seven Thuas of Fermanagh, so it gives a nod to the sort of the, the Gaelic tradition, political structure of the county, of the kingdom. And uh, Paragraph seven names all the terminers, and terminers were people who were, had responsibility for church lands, um, and it goes back to the time of Dunmore, son of Ranald, which is the sort of the beginning of the rise of the Maguire dynasty at the um, in the 13th century. So you can see all the nods that are being given in different directions to ancient past. So I think that these seven paragraphs establish the roots of the tale in antiquity and tradition and in so doing, ensure that the suggestion of ancient authority from which it's drawn is communicated at the outset to its readers, and indeed quite possibly to hearers of its recitation, because we're, we know that in a lot of cases, stories, particularly stories that were um, written in a particularly enjoyable way or an exciting way, would have been recited by storytellers for people who may not have had the literary skills to read them. So this brings me to sort of to try and tie the threads of what I've been saying to you together here. Um, see if I can I can sell the point I'm trying to make. Um, it would appear that Sean McGowan, through McGuire Armanach, provided Brian McGuire with a ready-made tale that had all the ingredients of an enjoyable heroic adventure, with a key subtext running through it. It allowed Brian Maguire to establish a cultural framework in which he could cement his position within a new and emerging social order. In doing so, Brian Maguire sought to respect and draw on the heritage of the native Gaelic literary and oral tradition while simultaneously seeking ways in which he could fulfill his ultimate ambition in respect of his reputation in that new order. I think he was trying to show um, that he was one worthy of acceptance by the settler community and that he was not in any way betraying the roots and tradition out of which he had come. A line from the scribal testimonial to the Book of Nocnini, which is held here in the Royal Irish Academy uh, manuscript C41, very neatly sums up what the essence of Brian Maguire's ambition, ambition was. Uh, the scribes uh, who wrote the testimonial uh, wrote, now 
since neither we nor these poor scribes are competent to make poems or verses, we are bound by right and conscience to write truly and voraciously in prose of the good repute and the noble qualities of this gentleman, so that what we write may live after him and may be a model for his descendants to imitate his goodly deeds, the which fortune may God grant them according to his own will and that of men, and if his posterity so do, their children's children shall never fail or drop into obscurity. And that kind of brings me to the end of the presentation. Uh, did those scribes write that uh, at Brian Maguire's behest? Uh, did he encourage them to write in such glowing terms about him? Did they themselves feel uh, that they were part of a big project that was a really important one, that was about the preservation of the end of the Gaelic tradition in the area and for Manor? Um, it's hard to tell and probably we'll never quite know. But as I said earlier on, what, I, what I've been trying to do here is, is look at a text that is a very important text in my view from the, that area of Fermanagh. Um, look at the context in which it was written. Look at the project, and it was a project in my view that Brian Maguire engaged in at the time. And let's face it, if, uh, if Brian Maguire's aim or the scribe's aim was that this story would be remembered and that Brian Maguire's uh, name and his pos posterity would flourish and would be celebrated, then I think the fact that we are sitting here today a little over 300 years after all these um, scribal activity uh, was all the scribal activity was happening then you'd have to argue that uh, he certainly achieved part of his aim anyway in the sense that he de developed or ensured a, a sort of a, um, a cultural memory that would not fade and that as I say brings us here today to celebrate and remember Brian Maguire the books of Nuknini Sean McGowan and all these characters who engaged in this really important project uh, at the beginning of the 18th century in Nopnini in County Fermanagh. Gurumila Maigaf.